fourth watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be an investigative look into the connections between secret societies and one of the most largely publicized satanic ritual-based murders of modern America. We're dealing with conspiracy and witchcraft mixed with media corruption and high-profile celebrities who practice black magic in their Hollywood cabals. You may have heard interviews on this case before, but tonight we investigate some different angles and grasp a better understanding of how this was an occult milestone in the modern world. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode Hollywood Cabals, Witchcraft, and the West Memphis Three, with special guests... William Ramsey. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the fourth watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. Now, tonight we're joined by author and researcher William Ramsey to discuss the occult powers in high places and how they likely orchestrated a major murder, which was in fact a blood sacrifice to the horned god of witchcraft. We're dealing tonight with elements of one of the most wicked and powerful secret societies and celebrity involvement. We're dealing with witchcraft and the selling of souls. We're going to get into a wide range of topics tonight pertaining to all of these. We're going to trek our way from the Hollywood Cabals and the West Memphis Three all the way to the Salem Witch Trials and celebrities invoking demons at the crossroads. And then we'll move into our continued study on the book of James. So be sure to stay tuned in for that as well. So with that said, let's go ahead and welcome back on William Ramsey. William, welcome back to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? Excellent. Thanks for having me, Justin. Glad to be back. Absolutely. Last time we had such a great discussion uh, getting into uh, Alistair Crowley and uh, just, man, such an awesome amount of feedback I received from that discussion we had. Tonight we're going to be talking about one of your other books, Abomination. Now, in Abomination, we're dealing with devil worship and the deception involved in the West Memphis Three murders. Correct. We're going to kind of get into the the details of the story and some of the interesting connections that you've made in your research. And we're also going to have a little tidbit. We'll do a little segment where we will show some of the connections or we'll say some of the uh, nuances that were shown through in the television series Stranger Things because you found a couple connections there as well. Uh, We'll definitely get to that as we move through the show. 
But to get started, go ahead and break down the premise of Abomination. And I, I really I want to get into the entire story of the West Memphis Three. At the very beginning was the disappearance of three boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. West Memphis is just over the Mississippi River from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, the three boys were eight-year-olds, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stephen Branch. They went out on the evening of May 5th, 1993, for a bicycle ride and were not seen. They disappeared. Um, they were all Cub Scouts who, you know, were pretty active, uh, rode their bikes around town. They disappeared. Nobody knew what the, what happened to them. And uh, horrifically, they were found the next day um, dead, and they were submerged in a ditch in some hills that were outside of the city of West Memphis. They commonly referred to as Robin Hood Hills. And uh, they were uh, ritually tied together in a very strange way. They were tied wrist to, to ankle. And one of the boys had his genitalia removed. And so it was a very horrific crime. The whole city was in an uproar. And uh, basically, you know, the police started doing their work. I researched all of the criminal files that are available. And about a month later, on I think it was June 3rd of 1993, Jesse Miss Kelly, who was a kind of a young, uh, kind of troubled man who uh, was in West Memphis, was brought into the police department. He was interviewed. And he confessed to the killing, doing it with two other boys, uh, Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. And so they were all arrested. They were tried and convicted in two different trials. Jesse Miss Kelly was not going to try uh, testify against them. So they had separate trials, but 24 juries found them guilty in 1994. And because Damian Eccles was 18 years and older, he was actually found sentenced to death. The other two had, I think, 40-year terms or long terms. So... That case um, generated a lot of interest nationally, but HBO and their um, documentary unit decided to film a documentary about them that was eventually released called Paradise Lost. It was released in 1996 to a lot of critical acclaim. And two other films by HBO were also produced. Uh, and they all kind of had different opinions, but the second one laid the blame for the crimes at, at one of the stepfathers, John Mark Byers, and the third one blamed Terry Hobbs. It was another of the stepfathers. But those films really created a uh, kind of a public interest that that kind of steamrolled into a kind of cost of interest in these cases. With the three uh, boys who committed the crimes, they kind of had a public uh, opinion that they were innocent. They kept saying they were innocent. Get us out. And uh, eventually celebrities got involved. People like Johnny Depp, um, Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks, Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam, Henry Rollins, um, Dave Navarro, Mark Richo, all these people who are pretty well-known names uh, really got behind the case. And eventually they changed the public opinion. They really people really thought that there was an injustice that took place. And about five years ago, um, on August 9th, I think August 11th, uh, 2000, August 19th, 2011, they were released. So it was about five years ago. Uh and they signed what's called an Alfred plea, which um, is a plea that uh, was a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that uh, basically the ruling was is that a person can still publicly say they're innocent while pleading guilty in a court. And so they pled guilty. They're actually under probation. All three of them are under probation until uh, 2021. But uh, 
one of the interesting things about this case, a lot of people, there was a lot of deception. A lot of people were lying in this case. Uh, one of the chief people who was talking about the case was Damien Eccles, who wrote a book called uh, Life After Death. And he also produced a documentary called West of Memphis. And both of these books kind of blamed all these different factors of why he got arrested, that he wore black, that it was a biased court system, that uh, he had an alibi. But all the, the facts that are in the case indicate that uh, both he, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Kelly were the proper people who were uh, charged with the crime and found guilty, in my opinion. And one of the other elements of the case that nobody really wanted to talk about and downplay was the occult elements of the case. Uh, the, the interest in the occult of Damien Eccles, who uh, it was a Wiccan who studied from the Book of Witchcraft uh, by a well-known uh, Wiccan and uh, who actually is a member of the OTO. It's confirmed from the OTO's, which, OTO's website themselves that he's a member of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which was headed by Aleister Crowley. And one of my interests in the case and how I became fascinated by it was because I was studying or researching for my book, Children of the Beast, and I came across a video that showed the prosecutor uh, by the name of Price questioning Damien Eccles on the stand about Aleister Crowley. Uh, what had happened is Damien Eccles, after his arrest, was writing uh, this kind of cryptic uh, alphabet and uh, correlating letters to the, the name of Aleister Crowley. And it was also interesting because the prosecutor himself had a copy of Aleister Crowley's Magic and Theory and Practice, his book, on his desk. And he was asking him about it, and I, I just thought that that was fascinating and really opened my, uh, opened my eyes to the case. And I came to conclusions that were much different than the PR and the celebrity uh, attitudes, which were, you know, supposedly that these guys were railroaded. I thought the reality was is that the cult was involved and, and kind of the occult – since Damien Eccles got released in 2011, he's still maintained his interest in the cult. He's got this huge black sun tattoo on his back. He has a bunch of occult tattoos all over his body. He's been seen associating with well-known occultists. He moved to Salem, Massachusetts, which is an interesting choice. Of all the places you could go, he goes exactly to where the witch trials were that took place there in uh, uh, was it uh, either the 15th or 16th century. So he said he said openly that that was why he went there, because he had a, a similar uh, belief that he was prosecuted for his beliefs, which is in, an interesting admission. Uh, and uh, so he still has an interest in the cult. He still posts uh, tons of information about his occult knowledge. And uh, that that case is, is really just a remarkable case for a variety of reasons. One is the involvement in the cult. Two is the, the power of celebrity opinion and PR in shaping public attitudes. And uh, I think that, that that this case is really remarkable on those, those uh, aspects. Now, let me ask a question. You've stated that your opinion, based on your research of the case, is kind of different from what the mainstream take on the case is. No doubt. Now, do you believe that, I mean, obviously they were all convicted and they were all charged. They all admitted to doing it one time or another. They all admitted to different people. And Jesse Miss Kelly actually made confessions, the confession that took place on June 3rd. But he also confessed post-conviction and laid out the exact kind of elements of what happened that day and led up to the crime. But uh, I do think that they committed the crime. There may have been other people. I mean, some people have speculated that other people were involved. The day of the crime, 
a very unusual uh, event happened. Uh, somebody showed up at a local a restaurant that wasn't far from the crime scene right around the same time of the crime with blood and mud all over his body and stayed in the bathroom for about an hour. So that was a very suspicious event. Other people have speculated that other people were there. And, you know, other the cops, uh, the police at the time, you know, had, had testimony from other people that one guy got in a cab and, and took a cab ride for 200 miles away from the crime scene. So uh, there is a possibility that it was more than three perpetrators. I mean, when we get into the the whole situation with Charles Manson, I mean, we, we were dealing with a mastermind occultist, and he was able to manipulate people, his followers, and by manipulating them, he had them do a lot of different occult crimes. They, they committed multiple types of occult murders. Do you think it's possible that there was a, a ringleader that we haven't found yet? Absolutely, and I think that that was in um, the court records did show that they answered to somebody older that they called, I think it was either Lucifer or something like that. So there was clearly a ring. And there was testimony that these groups would show up at an old uh, cotton gin, which is like a kind of an old farming building, that they would do rituals there. They called it Stonehenge. And and even there are pictures of that in the court cases of uh, pentagrams. And uh, there, there was testimony and even Jesse Miss Kelly said that that they would take dogs out and sacrifice them. And uh, even even Eccles in a video that I've seen said that, oh, yeah, there were dead dogs around there, but they were just roadkill, even though there were no roads around. Um, but uh, so there clearly is elements within the court records that show that these three were people, guys were networked with the larger um, cult community. Do you think it's possible that there was some MK Ultra going on in, in, involved in these murders? Well, it's an interesting point because Damien Eccles had a very transient uh, childhood that he claims not to have remembered very much of it, which is a very common element of you know people who have who have been some form of mind control. So I don't know, you know, in that environment, it's very it was hard to tell for me, but I do believe that there are elements of mind control in the case in the sense of how. The central L players were able to shape other people's minds. And in the, there was a, a document called the Exhibit 500. It was, it was referenced as Exhibit 500 because it was 500 pages of Damien Eccles' psych records. Um, it's a remarkable document that was compiled by his own defense for his uh, capital murder, murder uh, trial when he was going to be put to death. They put that forward in the court to show that he was uh, mentally unstable. But within that, that file, there was a document that, you know, basically showed that Damien Eccles liked to, to shape other people's minds and tried to, like, get his opinions off on people. And what I found myself in my own larger research is that mind control and shaping other minds is kind of like a handmaiden to a lot of Satanists. They, they're interested in those books. And that seems to be, a, you know, a component of that kind of uh, Luciferian or occult uh, ideology and practice. Well, the heart of witchcraft is manipulation. Uh, we, we can get into this uh, from any aspect. Witchcraft deals with manipulation, whether it's manipulating people through magic and sorcery, uh, whether it is the attempt to manipulate the elements with the same. So really manipulation, that's the root of witchcraft. And we, we go deeper into the, the, the case. And, and I want to get into a couple different aspects here. But you mentioned that there were celebrities that kind of jumped the gun to get on board with this case. Um, can you explain to us what that looked like? I mean, what was their goal? What was their agenda? How did that play out? 
Well, it seems like there was there was an attempt by all of these celebrities, or there was actually, I wouldn't call it an attempt. I think they successfully shaped the public's opinion about the case. And so um, they slowly became on board. Um, Johnny Depp and Dave Navarro and Henry Rollins and Margaret Cho all kept saying, you know, these guys were railroaded. So I think that their influence and their one of the interesting or astonishing aspects of the case is that 10 to 20 million dollars was raised from public sources, from the general public, from these celebrities to pay for PR and the best, really some of the best attorneys in the country, the best appellate attorneys. So um, the celebrities did, uh, you know, did succeeded in a, a getting all of this money raised and changing Opinion, and I think that that's kind of a unfortunate aspect of our modern culture is that people um, admire the opinions of celebrities, whether they're right or wrong. And so I think that they, Johnny Depp was on, uh, he was on Larry King on CNN saying he was 100% convinced that um, Damien Eccles didn't do it when all the facts in the case indicate otherwise. So uh, I think that uh, the, it's hard to ascertain. When I first looked at this case four years ago, my book was published four years ago, Abomination. When I first looked at the case, I really didn't know all the pieces of like these um, these occultists. You know, I, I didn't know them much about the celebrities. But once I started researching them, I realized they had occult ties. Um, Johnny Depp and Dave Navarro, in particular, is really a shameless occultist interested in the occult, um, and their friends are. Uh, you know, I guess by, I guess you're known by the, the friends you keep. And one of uh, Johnny Depp's best associates is Marilyn Manson, who's claimed to be associated with the OTO and the Process Church, which is a pretty intense kind of occult society. So, you know, once you start researching and kind of blowing the, the dust or like looking under the rocks of these celebrities, you find some very interesting associations. So the celebrities basically were using their platform in, in this event uh, and it was really twofold because number one, they're getting out there and they're getting just publicity. I mean, they're getting out there with publicity. Their their names are in the media, but they're also coming out to defend these convicted killers. They're they're defending them. They're basically saying that they've been made into patsies, that they really didn't do it, uh, or as you said, that they they promoted the idea that these these three boys were railroaded. Um, because we do know, uh, unfortunately, the way the legal system works is that when a crime is committed, we'll just say a big crime for that matter, when a big crime is committed, somebody has to take the fall. There always has to be a fall guy. Always. I mean, we see this, uh, even this this whole idea being portrayed in movies, uh, but we also see it in reality, that when something happens, somebody has to take the blame, because until somebody's convicted, the public won't rest. And so, obviously, the celebrities jump out and they say, well, you got it all wrong, these guys are innocent, but what we find out is that the celebrities who are trying to back these guys up they're occultists. They have occult ties. And generally speaking, celebrities are going to have um, a little bit. I'm going to be careful how I say this, but celebrities generally have a little bit of cushion. They can get off with certain things depending on what they're doing. They've got the money. They've got the support. Uh, and, and generally money backs up politics. I hate to say it like that, but that's the truth. So you've got people who are famous. They've got money. They practice the occult. They practice uh, they practice witchcraft and they're able to do things. This goes right back to what uh, we talked about briefly about in Hollywood, the occult Hollywood, that there are these upper echelons of secret societies in Hollywood that are able to perform human sacrifice because they've got these cults, these groups that they've put together. They've funded them. They're politically tied and they're able to get away with these types of things. 
it's remarkable that you say that because it's, I mean, that's kind of what I've been seeing studying Depp and a lot of the stuff, but Depp, Depp's personal worth is somewhere in a half a billion range. And Peter Jackson, who was the director of The Hobbit in Lord of the Rings films, was another Damien Eccles supporter who bankrolled, bankrolled Damien Eccles' uh, documentary, West of Memphis, is worth half a billion dollars, too. So these aren't just wealthy people. They're really super wealthy. And they really can shape opinion through their networks of friends and their Twitter followers and all this. You know, they have a serious poll, and you're right. And what happens behind closed doors? If you talk to a lot of people who've been in Hollywood, um, you know, they talk about eyes wide shut parties. They talk about stuff that is really unspeakable. I mean, I was just watching, for example, I was listening to a Joe Rogan interview with Milo Yiannopoulos of Juanes, and me and Yiannopoulos is saying the same thing. I've been to parties. Uh, there are underage people there, and it wasn't proper, you know. So uh, that's just one example. So these these things do happen. So the the pull, I would say that the lever that really released the West Memphis Three, the most important, was the celebrity support. Yeah, it's amazing to see the celebrity support that takes place in all types of things. I mean, the celebrities get on the bandwagon to force abortion rights, uh, late-term abortions. A lot of celebrities say, well, it's the woman's body, it's her choice. Uh, when there's a candidate running for president, like Obama, for instance, how many of them were trying to ride on that bandwagon? And I mean, George Clooney, all these others, they were like, Obama, Obama, Obama. Celebrities have such a pull in society. It's disgusting. And, you know, you find these celebrities off camera and they're monsters. I mean, they're literally they're actors when they're on camera, but then they're off camera. And people always look at people and they're like, well, I'm going to base my judgment of that actor based on the roles that he's performed. And so they really have no idea the type of reality that that person is living in off camera. It's really it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. It's a form of mind control. And it's conditioning our population that we need to support these celebrities because the celebrities have some kind of special power. And, you know, Will Smith even said that he considers himself an alchemist because he knows how to turn lead into gold, you know, referencing from the, the famous book, The Alchemist. And the whole idea that he was getting at there was that he knows how to manipulate things. And it was the power of manipulation that allowed him to get where he was and to be successful. And this was an interview he did on Black Entertainment Television, or BET. So really, we're getting into alchemy here at different different grades. But I, I want to draw us back to the West Memphis Three because obviously, you know, we could go, we could really do a whole tangent there on Hollywood. But we do have to cover that. We, we really can't move too forward without covering those things because without the celebrity pool that entered into this case. Um, I think that we wouldn't have the understanding that we have. So I think that's good to go there. Now, after um, after Damien Eccles was convicted, we see photos of him with celebrities. You've posted photos of him hanging out with celebrities. Yeah, yeah I just posted one with him with Sarah Silverman. He's been seen with Ozzy Osbourne, Marilyn Manson, hanging out with all really high-end celebrities. Do you think that it's possible that he was chosen by their cabal to perform these rituals. Yes, absolutely. That's the, okay. And again, I don't want, I ask it like that and I'm rephrasing what I said earlier. I never want to put words into your mouth because you're the researcher on this case. Well, no, that's fine. You know, I, I've, I've been following the case intensely for four years. There's been all kinds of statements. He, uh, Eccles still practices magic at a very high level. He was actually asked on the stand when he was 18 whether you know anything about the occult. And he was, his response was, I know everything about the occult. And that was when he was 18. So 
he has his own podcast where he does uh, Golden Dawn rituals, which are interesting. It's called the Middle Pillar Ritual. Um, so it's a specific specific tie-in back to this um, post-Masonic magical order of which Aleister Crowley was a member. And uh, so I do believe Eccles, you know, it's you can't, you know, it's not like you're there, but when you see them hanging out at other people's houses, Damien Eccles is spending time at, uh, uh, you know, these guys' places and, and traveling in their planes. He stated he's traveled with um, Johnny Depp on his plane. So I do think that there's a good likelihood that they practice magic together. Yeah. Now, let's let's talk about the murder scene for a second. You've explained that when they discovered the murder scene, what they found was clearly a satanic ritual that took place. Well, I would say so. I mean, the, the, there was all kinds of things that happened there that indicated that that was what happened. If you look at there was all kinds of luminal um, stuff that was the, the pictures that the police had, which never were interested, entered into evidence, but they were um, part of the police record. They showed all kinds of. Uh, you know, stuff that was going on. So, yeah, I would say that that's the case. Now, I'm going to speculate here. Some people may not like what I'm about to say, but investigating something like this, I think it's important to kind of kind of weigh in the different options and possibilities because we're trying to get the best understanding we can. Uh, as we broke down in the last show we did together, William, we got into the idea of how uh, how Crowley and his magic and his legacy has has cast a giant shadow over humanity. How all these things that are taking place today, maybe not everything, but how many of the things that are taking place today uh, are basically responses uh, to the things that he did. And it's like a continuation of his occult magic. Our society is embedded with this. You know, we're not going to backtrack, but we covered a lot of this in the last episode we did. And so looking at this occult crime, the West Memphis Three, it's my thought, first of all, based on the celebrity uh, involvement here, I would say that I'm going to speculate that it's very possible that they wanted to get caught. Now, I think that sometimes they don't want to, and when they don't want to get caught, they don't get caught. I, I mean, look, let, let's just be real for a second, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, people who have all the money in the world and all the power in the world, all the following in the world, they can get by, they can commit all types of satanic ritual crimes and never get caught because they plan it properly. They've got the budget, they've got the connection, they're in the inner circles, and they're part of these cabals. So if they don't want to get caught, they're not going to get caught. I mean, Bohemian Grove, many people believe that they sacrifice an actual human every year. They don't believe, many researchers say it is not a, a, a sacrifice done in effigy. They say that it's a real sacrifice of a human that takes place. Now, I can't validate that, but I'm making a point that if people get caught that are celebrities, it's generally either they got sloppy or they wanted to get caught. So it's possible that they broke this out as a conditioning stunt to the population. They wanted people to see this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it. And yes, we are worshiping the devil. Now, does that mean that the three boys wanted to get caught? No, but they were simply chosen for this role by the people in their cabal. So it's very possible that this was done as an open display just to condition the population that, yes, we are worshiping Satan Yes, we are sacrificing people to the devil, and we want everybody to know about it. That's my idea. Now, what, what's your thought on that? I think it's plausible. I think that there definitely was some sloppiness of what, you know, what happened at the time. But I do believe that there was a cabal involved, like the local pastor 
you know, said he had talked to Eccles and Eccles said, you know, there's certain things I can't do or I'll get in trouble with the group. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I mean, to, as far as taking the fall, I think that they've kept their mouth shut, the, the West Memphis three about their larger occult ties, um, to a certain extent. Eccles has said that Eccles has said that, you know, he, he's admitted to being part of the OTO. He said that he was arrested for his love of Alistair Crowley, which is an interesting statement. Uh, post-release because at the time of the murders, they really didn't know the totality of what happened. No, nobody can because all this stuff is kept through codes of silence and oaths of silence. But uh, I do believe that there he was – I mean, it shows in that if you read the police records or you read Abomination and you go through all of the statements made to police, it's clear that there was a larger group of what size. What, it's hard to say, but, you know, 10, 20 people at least. And there were people that, that the cops – or the police wrote down there were lists of people involved in the groups. And even Eccles' girlfriend, Dominique Tier, she had cousins who were involved in these blood-drinking vampire clubs in San Bernardino. So, you know, the ties are there. Whether these guys took the fall, I think that they definitely kept their mouth shut about their larger um, talk. I mean, even Eccles, and you can read about an abomination, when he was brought into the police, he told them he failed a, a lie detector test. And he said to the cops, let me talk to my mom and I'll tell, and then I'll tell you everything. Well, the exact opposite happened. He talked to his mom and he clammed up and never told, but why would he ask his mom? And the police always thought that his mom was involved from the beginning. And one of the interesting things too about that same year, his mother, his sister and some family members were at a bonfire on the, on the banks of the Mississippi river in the middle of the night and somebody got shot and killed. So that is another like weird ritual event where other family members are um, involved in murder. So I do think that uh, I do think that, that that there's a larger issue, and I think that that's why the other the celebrities got involved. They're fellow travelers with these guys, no doubt. One of the chapters in your book is, it's entitled "History of Witchcraft: The Occult Basis for the Murders." Take us there. Well, I wanted to just show, you know, when I first was reading the the story, I actually took a position. I was in a very minority position, a, a minority among the people who actually thought they were guilty who were in a minority. So I really tried to establish how that there is a connection to witchcraft in the case by going back and talking about the history of witchcraft. So I really wanted to go back to Crowley and Gerald Gardner and some of other Gerald, Gard Gerald Gardner's influences. And Crowley, um, believe it or not, Gerald Gardner was the founder of uh, Wicca, which he wrote a book called, uh, it was something about witchcraft, but he wrote a book um, that uh, was really the, the, the foundation for, um, for witchcraft. It was called uh, was Witchcraft Today. And so that was, but the interesting thing about Gardner is that he had an OTO a membership from Aleister Crowley. So there's a connection between Crowley and Gardner. Gardner himself, um, you know, kind of uh, encapsulated a lot of Crowley's ideas into, into his doctrines. And uh, he, Gardner himself, influenced this guy, Ray Buckland, who is a Wiccan who lives in the United States. And Buckland's a complete book of witchcraft was something that Damien Eccles wanted. So I just tried to trace that connection all the way back from Crowley to Gardner to Raymond Buckland to Damien Eccles. And then I also talked about some of the elements that are in these witchcraft stuff, things like the Theban alphabet, which is uh, Damien Eccles' work with, which is the witch's alphabet, cord magic, which I think was involved in the deaths, 
talismanic magic. So I talk about all that. And, uh, you know, that's basically why I have that chapter is just to show that correlation from Crowley all the way to West Memphis. Getting into the idea of the occult basis for the crimes. Obviously, a crime like this was planned out. And this is kind of going back to what we said earlier. This was not something this was not just an act of passion. Uh, this was an actual murder that took place that has occult elements. It was clearly a blood ritual. There was witchcraft elements involved. Getting into that idea, we know that Tennessee, and we kind of briefly touched on this last time, but we know that Tennessee has some major occult connections. Um, and I'm sure if we really got down to the nitty gritty, we could find many occult ties in all the states uh, because we do know that America as a nation was founded uh, on many occult principles. But we're not going to we're not going to go into that tangent right now. I want to focus on Tennessee for the sake of the West Memphis Three. But in, in Tennessee, we've got the Memphis Pyramid, which we broke down last time in Children of the Beast. But we also have another peculiar situation in Tennessee. We've got the statue of Athena, the goddess. Now, in Nashville, anybody can go to, to Nashville and they rebuilt the Parthenon, uh, literally a full scale replica of the ancient Parthenon in Nashville. And inside of it is a giant statue, an idol of Athena. Now, some people are going to wonder why I'm bringing up Memphis, Tennessee. So uh, obviously the crimes did take place in Arkansas, but the crimes took place right across the river from the pyramid in Memphis, Tennessee. Correct. And you can see the pyramid from uh, the crime scene and from the city of West Memphis. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just want to throw that out there. Don't want to create any confusion. But the fact is there has to be some type of location going on here in the occult crime. Just want to pinpoint that real quick. Was there any significance in the date? I believe that the... Um, date was important. It was close to one of the important dates on the occult calendar, which is Beltane. And so I believe that it was within the time frame of Beltane or where you can do that. And also, I think the location is important, the water element of the of the case. I can't claim to fully understand the purpose of why sacrifices are done in water. But two of the, the children were drowned and um, it's an important part of alchemy where you disperse the spirit into water and it goes back into the uh, five elements of, you know, the pentagram, the air, earth, wire, fire and water. And so I think that that's why it was done in water. Um, along with other things, there's other books that were, you know, that I read about. There was one guy who talked to police and uh, there was a, a book that was never found. That was a really hardcore satanic book that talked about rituals. And uh, I believe that some there, the, the ritual that was, that happened was out of a book like that. It was off of the Mississippi River. There was actually, you know, due to flooding, they created these canals that uh, kind of came out of the Mississippi River. And uh, there was a 10 mile or I think they called it the 10 mile canal. And this park was just right off of the side of that canal. When you're dealing with Memphis, you're dealing with some direct connections with ancient Egypt. And with the Mississippi River going through there, I believe it's the Mississippi River, which is a parallel in the occult world. It's their parallel to the Nile River. Interesting. I didn't know that. But if I remember correctly, um, that was supposed to be the parallel in building the city of Memphis because Memphis is literally and we don't have time to cover all the details. But Memphis is uh, it's supposedly uh, a modern version of Egypt. Now, I want to I want to move us on here. Witches and witch hunts. How would you compare this to an actual witch hunt? Because there's speculation about the Salem witch trials. I think we all know this. Uh, I believe witchcraft was actually going on in Salem. I don't believe it was a, just a, a witch hunt per se. You know, people throw the word witch hunt around like, 
uh, if it's a witch hunt, then basically you're searching for something that doesn't exist in modern culture. I believe there was real witchcraft going on in Salem. I think we can validate this with research. I think that there's a lot of history there of witchcraft. And I think that's also another reason why a lot of witches have uh, magnetized themselves to that area. I mean, even today, I'm told that there's rarely, if you go to Salem, it's predominantly witchcraft. But why did you use that term, witches and witch hunts, in dealing with the West Memphis Three? Because one of the common kind of statements made by the supporters of the West Memphis Three is that it was a witch hunt. And it was a very, it's a loaded term, a witch hunt, because the way it's bandied about is that uh, you are this fantasist who actually believes in uh, some kind of uh, witch riding around on a broom. And so I think that it really allayed people from investigating that, that part of the case. And I will, I will agree with your, uh, your statement that you can prove that witchcraft was involved in the Salem events because my re- research actually indicated that as well, that the girls who were tinkering around in, um, in Salem uh, were in were did have these books. They had the uh, they had this book, the Malleus Maleficarum, which was a witch hunting book that was uh, came out of Germany. And their slave Tituba was involved with all kinds of uh, strange kind of uh, occult kind of behavior. But they were doing things. They would bake a witch cake. They would uh, they would do this thing where they would get these eggs and try to do these searing from these eggs. So. It's important to remember that that hysteria that took place in Salem, uh, people traveled there. A lot of the, I think it was Cotton Mather or Increase Mather traveled there to investigate the phenomenon of what was happening in Salem. And uh, so I think that the evidence shows that there was something that was happening there and that the witch hunt was valid. And even, you know, they talked about the people were killed in Salem. And I think it was a tragedy. Uh, most of those people probably, ne- you know, never should have been uh, persecuted. And even I think Increase Mather said that, you know, nothing like that should ever happen. But um, I do think that uh, there are groups of occultists. And I, I think you referenced uh, Manson as, you know, having his family. That was kind of like a witch group in some ways. You can perceive that in the modern world as this guy who was involved in the cult, who some of his followers said they studied Crowley. So, you know, I wanted to address that in my book, and that's why I devoted the chapter to, you know, the history of witch hunts, what other people had done. And because it was actually a common event or an occurrence in the, you know, 16th and 17th century of these these events happening. And even King James, who was responsible for the King James Bible, a lot of people don't know that he wrote books on witch hunts. And one of his book was Demonology. And, uh, you know, he talked about uh, the, even back then that sometimes there were these things that would crop up. Uh, and there was a, a witch event in Scotland, but he, 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 I, and I repeated his statement. He says, uh, these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches and enchanters have moved to dispatch and post this following treatise of mine to resolve the doubting both that such assaults of Satan are most certainly practiced and that the instrument thereof merits most severely to be punished. So, um, I do think that, uh, Addressing why there are these kind of uh, uh, witches and why these witch events happen and how people took them seriously, I think, was an important part of the book and how how to also look at the West Memphis Three event. Visiting Salem, there's all types of witchcraft uh, monuments and there's a witchcraft museum there. Heavy presence, as I stated earlier, of witchcraft. Um, I remember years ago when a, a band called Godsmack came out with their first studio album. 
Um, I loved it. You know, this is before I was walking with the Lord and, and I liked, I was drawn to dark music. And I remember a song on the album called Voodoo. And in that video, th- this is unbelievable, but they actually performed a real Wiccan ritual in the video. And in the video was the famous witch, Lori Cabot. She is still one of the people in Salem. She's considered like the witch priestess of Salem. I mean, she still holds that rank pretty much. Um, but Salem really, I mean, it, it, it has so much modern day witchcraft going on there. Well, you said that's where Damien Eccles decided to relocate to once he was released. So when he moved there, he thought that he was going to be um, welcomed in that home. And it seems like there was some uh, elements that wel- welcomed. He set up a, a place where he could pr- practice Reiki, which is a kind of magical energy work you use with your hands. And he calls it Hermetic Reiki. Um, he actually wrote a book while he was there called Mind Magic, which I haven't really been able to uh, obtain, but something tells me it has to do with mind control. But when he moved to Salem, uh, actually looking back in the police files, there was a copy that he had of Exorcist, which was uh, written by Peter Blatty. And why that's interesting is when Damien Eccles moved to Salem in like 2012, uh, somebody none other than Peter Blatty's son lived there, Michael Blatty. Um, and he was really the, the, the most forward proponent of having people analyze that this convicted murderer was living in their city. And uh, I was actually following, kind of following the case and following Michael Blatty's um, exposing of Damien Eccles and his conviction um, uh, for capital murder and uh, how it played out in Salem. And actually he, um, they actually shut down, apparently the Reiki shop was unlicensed. So that got shut down by the city. And Eccles moved to New York, I think, in 2014 and sold his house. So I don't think things went really that well for him there. Um, but I uh, I was fortunate enough to kind of reach out to Mike and we we became friends, you know, so I, I still keep in touch with him. So that's an interesting aspect of how this case kind of played out there in uh, Salem. And there's been other kind of interesting events, too, like he tried Damien Eccles tried to get involved with Yoga Works, uh, which is kind of a big yoga studio out here in California. And uh, groups of people complained with Yoga Works, went straight to the top of Yoga Works, and that got canceled. So he's actually, people are kind of, uh, have Damien Eccles on their radar. They're very aware of what he's up to. He used to be on a lot of TV shows. I have all those interviews of him at my uh, YouTube site of Cold Investigations, if anybody's interested in taking a look. I have a pretty good archive of a lot of these uh, interviews he's done with The View and uh, CNN and things like that. But uh, it's been interesting how this this uh, whole situation has played out over the last four years. So. I want to talk about Wicca for a few minutes. I, I think it's important that we do talk about Wicca uh, because Wicca, many people hear Wicca and they picture people wearing white robes, you know, maybe with some uh, olive branches around their heads, just peaceful, nature-loving hippies. That's kind of the uh, the PR that Wicca gets. I, I, I hate to say it like that, but that's kind of the, the way that it, that it moves. Yeah. And it, there's actually a very sinister underbelly of Wicca. Um, if you, if you, uh, practice Gardenarian, uh, Wicca, Wicca, it's pretty clear that he borrowed a lot of his information from Crowley and these other kind of books. But it's interesting that, you know, they, they, they get in these magical circles and they consider it as a, as a portal between worlds. And uh, 
uh, Gardner himself called that other world the dominion of the gods. And he said, he himself wrote, the old gods are not dead. They think we are, which is uh, interesting. But another interesting aspect of when he would draw that circle, it was nine by 11, which is like a huge power number uh, in the occult and, and uh, was the same numbers on September 11th, right? Absolutely. So, um, but they, I mean, it was, it's pretty vile stuff that they get involved in. They do it naked. They get in there naked. There's all types of sexual acts between him and, I mean, he was supposed to, and when he was the high priest, uh, that's what, that's what they would do. So, and on, there's bloodletting and things like that. So at the certain part of Wicca that is a little higher up than these kind of elementary or introductory books, it gets pretty dark. Yeah. You get into that idea that it's, well, with many of the occult secret societies and religions, they're kind of set up similarly because you've got, these levels, you know, you just mentioned when you get higher up and, you know, a little more serious about Wicca, same thing with Freemasonry and OTO. I mean, you know, you work your way up and as you get more seasoned and more experienced, you learn more of the true doctrines and beliefs of that religion. And in Wicca, it's the same. And as you get up into Wicca, you start to learn the realities that you're actually dealing with black magic and you, you find out that the God, the supreme God of Wicca, the God above gods, per se, using their terminology, is what they call the horned God. You know, you talk to some of these lower level Wiccans and, you know, they may believe in a goddess or this, that or the other. But as you get up into Wicca and you learn the truth about it, you're dealing with the horned God. And I, I did a little bit of a breakdown on this when I talked about the movie The Craft, because The Craft tied into real witchcraft. They performed real satanic witchcraft rituals on set. They had a lot of weird stuff take place on set as they were doing the rituals. Uh, I've, I've outlined this. Uh, actually, actually, I think I did probably two shows, if I'm not mistaken, where I kind of talked about this and broke this down. I think one of the actresses on uh, in that show, she owns a witchcraft store here in, in Los Angeles, right off Hollywood. She does. She does. And she's the girl who was the uh, I forget her name. But she was a real creepy one, and she was also she's in you know a handful of movies, but she was also one of the main stars in the Adam Sandler movie, The Water Boy. No, it's interesting because I I've driven by there. It's called Pan's Pan's Gateway, or I forgot something like that. Yep, exactly. And it's funny because she well not funny, but it's ironic because while she was filming the movie The Craft, they brought in a real witch consultant who helped them, and it was during the filming of The Craft that she accepted Wicca and decided she wanted to basically get initiated into the religion while they were filming. And this is interesting. I broke down the ritual. She went through a ritual on the beach while they were filming. She basically got inducted into Wicca. But after the movie, she took some of the money she made, and that's where she started this occult shop. It's called Pan Pipes. Sorry, I got the name wrong. Pan Pipes. That's right. That's right. It's been a minute since I've uh, brought this out. But yeah, you're, you're right on point there. It's right there. It's, it's probably not too far from you. Um, no, right off of Hollywood, kind of like the main kind of avenue of the stars type thing. But it's just it's an interesting element because you're dealing with uh, the idea of the horned god getting up high up into Wicca. And the horned god, I mean, it doesn't take much connection to realize we're dealing with Satan. Right. Now, the pentagram shows up in all sorts of magic, not just Wicca. But the pentagram being a Wiccan symbol, a lot of Wiccans will wear the pentagram around their neck. Uh, they'll draw the pentagram when they're doing rituals. And the pentagram... Uh, and its true form is the goat head, the horned god. I think it also is represents the four elements plus spirit, the the five different sides. So I think there's a lot of other things that play in there. Oh, oh, many, many, many. The pentagram is a lot deeper than that. I just want to make the the connection there that in the within the pentagram drawing, you're going to see the goat head. Agreed. 
Absolutely. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, Damien Knuckles had a pentagram tattooed on his chest. And you see the pentagram showing up in multiple occult murders. Uh, what was the guy, uh, was it Ramirez, cut pentagrams into his hand? Yeah, he did. He uh, was struck pretty much in California. He was a very, and rumored to be, I, don't, I think some people have confirmed that, that he, that he was a member of the Church of Satan with Anton LaVey. But he traveled, he was a very clever killer. He was a multi-jurisdictional killer where he would go from different police jurisdictions, and that's why he was able to get away with what he did for so long. But he he was uh, unrepentant about his Satanism and his ideas. You know, there's no question about it. So I think, uh, I think it's just another example of a cold crime. And one of the interesting elements of the West Memphis Three about people ignoring the occult crimes, there was a, a guy by the name of John Douglas, who's a famous uh, FBI profiler. But he wrote, you know, that, and this is out of the FBI, but they seem to think that there's no occult influences upon crime. And so I actually included a lot of those occult crimes in my book. And, uh, you know, it's just another example of how people can uh, overlook the facts. But uh, John Douglas was another interesting aspect of the West Memphis Three case because he said, after looking at all of the elements of the case, you know, there was nothing in the the, the behavior of Miss Kelly Baldwin and Eccles that would indicate any crimes, which uh, actually overlooks tons of information about them. We look at a situation like West Memphis Three, and if they can tell people, if they can try to prove that there was no occult connections, it lightens the load. And it takes, I mean, it, it totally waters down what's going on here. No question. And I think that that was one of the elements that they were successful for. And that's why I titled the book Double Worship and Deception, because deception is an essential component of the whole case. Um, if you're looking at it, if some people are looking at it for, at first blush or first glance, not everybody's telling the truth. You got to realize that, that there are players in this case who are intentionally omitting uh, facts. And omission, like uh, George Orwell said, omission is the greatest form of lie. So if you omit certain facts, then you get a different look at the case, you know. But you, you, the important thing is to look at all the case records, which uh, you can find in my book and you can also find online at uh, it's at Callahan's uh, 8K, all of the case records. So they're, they're easily verifiable and analyzed. Now, something else that I want to throw in here is that recently we've been turned on to a, a Netflix series called Stranger Things. And uh, I did a whole breakdown of this. Uh, I guess it was a couple weeks back. Chad Riley, Michael Hurd, myself broke down the realities behind Stranger Things, getting into Project Montauk. But you have made some interesting connections. Because of your research into the West Memphis Three, you made some kind of interesting parallel connections between Stranger Things, some of the nuances in Stranger Things, and this occult crime. So break that down for us. Tell us what you found. Well, I uh, was watching it, and one of the interesting elements is that one of the boys, or the boy who disappeared, his name was Byers, B-Y-E-R-S, which is the name of one of the victims in this case. And standing alone, I, you know, that was interesting on its own, but then I found out, or through watching the show, Eleven, uh, which is the name of the girl who kind of was the MK Ultra um, uh, subject, her last name was Ives. And in in the in the state of Arkansas, the West Memphis Three case happened, but there's also was a notorious case called the Boys on the Tracks, where one of these young men died in the forest, and his name was Ives as well. So Byers and Ives were two young uh, victims that disappeared in the forest, and uh, so that inclusion was in that 
in that case, and I mean in the show. So it leads me to believe that the producers or the writers had knowledge of the West Memphis Three and the Boys on the Tracks cases. Wow. What are your What are your thoughts? What are your kind of final thoughts on the West Memphis Three? Like when you finished your investigation, when you considered it a case closed according to William Ramsey, what were your final thoughts? What was left in your mind? The occult was involved in the in the crime, and that Damien Eccles is probably at the top of or near the top of the occult hierarchy in the United States, and that there is a cult or a group of people, like-minded people, who worked um, above the uh, you know behind the scenes and in the public publicity or in the media to. Uh, manipulate the opinions of the public about the case with the intent to frustrate justice and get the release of the West Memphis Three. Now, you mentioned Eccles being high up now. So obviously this potentially could have been his, uh, I'll use this term lightly, but his hazing ritual, uh, his induction to a higher level. Well, I think, you know, I think that if somebody is in the occult, they are constantly uh, trying to move up higher in the uh, in the in the hierarchy. And I think that that's what this leads to is like doing these types, this type of event. So um, I've seen Damien Eccles with this guy by the name and this, he was in a movie called IRL with this guy by the name of Genesis P. Orridge, who has been around for a long time. Friends with Timothy Leary, Robert Anton Wilson. But it's just the association of those two together is remarkable. And you can see that video on my uh, YouTube channel on about, about it, IRL. It's very interesting. But if you look up Genesis Peorge, you'll know that that guy's really high up too. So those two together are very important. But it's important to look at Damien Eccles left a lot of writing about himself and he said some incredible things. He said, I see a perfect explosion, God's ammunition dump going up in the flames of righteousness, Satan storming heaven, his artillery captain, a fiercely grinning fool with red flayed cheeks, Damien by name, never to be Michael Hutchison again. The end is near. Kiss your butt goodbye. So that's the kind of stuff he writes, you know, him being his artillery captain of Satan. And also you mentioned him being a a practicing member of the OTO. Correct. So, you know, you can see that video too at uh, the Cold Investigations on YouTube that he uh, was a member of the OTO while he was in jail, confirmed in 2007. Wow. And as you stated and you've outlined in your work, the OTO is a very popular secret society among celebrities in, in Hollywood. Very much so. And you can see kind of its its effect. I mean, I wrote in my book uh, in Children of the Beast about Peaches Geldof, who tragically died of a heroin overdose. Uh, but she was uh, flirting with and a member. It looks like she was a member of the OTO. She wrote positive things about Aleister Crowley. And she was really kind of rock royalty in England, son of Bob Geldof. It was actually a German secret society, but after the heads of the German society died, Aleister Crowley became its head in 1925 and was its head until he died in 1947. If you could sum up the OTO and their beliefs and their agenda, and I know it's hard to do that in a short amount of time, but how would you sum that up for somebody who's listening who maybe doesn't know uh, what the OTO is? A post-Masonic magical fraternity that was uh, involved in sexual magic, and, uh, you know, it was a, almost all these guys were occultists who were also uh, spies or members of secret, like uh, their version of secret services. So um, 
that's what I would say it was. Is it really a high level magical fraternity? And this is going beyond uh, your mom and pop shop secret society. The, the, we're not we're not dealing with people who join the Masons because they want to uh, maybe you know get some business connections or social connections. Because obviously, uh, I don't agree with any of Freemasonry. We know it's a satanic craft. We know that they worship Lucifer at the highest levels. We know there's human sacrifice at the highest levels. Uh, I've broken this down. Uh, people who don't believe me or people who may not be familiar with this, uh, head on over and listen to the show that I did called The Luciferian Craft. Broke all these different aspects down. But a lot of people claim on the surface, well, I just joined the Masons because I wanted to make some friends, have a guys club, maybe uh, get networked for my job. Um, and, and those people who join the Masons, they still take occult rituals uh, as they enter in. But they, a lot of them, the majority of the Masons stay at a lower level, what they call porch Masons. They don't ever work their way up. They don't ever get to that high point of knowledge. Uh, they're basically deceived uh, from the higher levels down. But when you're dealing with the OTO, you're not dealing with, well, I just stumbled into the secret society. We're dealing with people who are seasoned magicians who want power and who want to go higher. Right. Definitely. So very interesting discussion there on the OTO. I know we could really go deeper into that. But the OTO really does have a major presence in Hollywood, a lot of occult influence over the United States and, and, and even beyond. Now, it wouldn't surprise me at all, Justin, that every member uh, who is male who supported Damien Eccles is an, uh, in Hollywood is an OTO member. Wouldn't surprise me at all. You said something earlier in the show. I did not want to go into a tangent because we were right getting started, you know, right, right at the beginning, getting into some of the information. But you mentioned Marilyn Manson. Now, there's a lot of theory about this guy, Brian Warner. Um, on one hand, I hear people say, well, he's just a showman. You know, matter of fact, he, he went on the Bill O'Reilly show, uh, years ago and Bill O'Reilly was pretty harsh with him. Uh, I don't like Bill O'Reilly, but, uh, I think he's, you know, he's just an Illuminati puppet, but he was real harsh with Marilyn Manson, basically saying, you know, accusing him of his music, uh, causing people to do the bad things that they're doing. You know, basically the kids are killing people and, rebelling against their parents because of your music. And Marilyn Manson, in a very soft-spoken, very educated voice, comes back and says no. He says, I just say the things people want to hear, basically. And I'm paraphrasing. I'm not I'm not quoting him. But Marilyn Manson, some people say he just puts on a show. Some people say that he's very educated, uh, which I do think he's educated. I've heard him speak. But on the other hand, some people say, well, he's very heavily involved in the occult. Now, I've heard two arguing factions on this and it seems that many people are going to write him off as a showman because he gets on stage and he dresses up and he does all kinds of crazy stuff but we do know that he has publicly said that he joined the church of satan basically just as a publicity stunt you know because you if you spend enough money you can basically buy yourself um an ordination with the church of satan it's about money but to be involved in the Process Church or the OTO, which you claimed earlier uh, that there are rumors that Marilyn Manson's part of these groups, uh, that would kind of paint a whole different picture. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on Marilyn Manson? Do you think he's putting on a show? Do you think he really is an occultist? I mean, wh- what do you really What have you found in your in your studies? In my studies, it's not a show. I mean, he sought out and met with Anton Lavey. Uh, he said about Anton, he said we have both dedicated the better part of our lives to toppling Christianity with the weight of its own hypocrisy. Um, so he, uh, I think that from his writing and from what I've read, he had in one of his songs, he sings about going to the Abbey of Thelema, which was Crowley's magical fraternity. So he didn't just stumble upon that. Uh, but, you know, he writes about Antichrist superstar, but he's also said that he's been influenced by Crowley, that he's affiliated or 
has a, attachments to the OTL and uh, the Process Church. So, and he has a very deep knowledge of the occult. So I don't believe that it's all for show. And just, I mean, seeing his associations, I have, I have a video of him talking about the West Memphis Three and saying that they were railroaded. And he, he actually did something very clever, which is repeated three times, which is a common way for people who want to influence others. You know, you repeat something over and over again so that it gets uh, buried in their mind. So uh, for me, uh, he has a darker, you know, darker connection. Yeah, and, and he obviously has influence. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he's influenced many kids to do things, uh, to rebel against their parents, to rebel against Christianity. Um, you know, I look at Marilyn Manson and I say, we're dealing with a guy who had zero talent. I mean, just let me finish saying this first, ladies and gentlemen, because I've said before he's a talented artist now. Um, I, matter of fact, I haven't listened to the guy in years and years and years. I mean, when I got saved, I, I got rid of all that crap. I mean, I, I purged my music library. But uh, when I listened to him, the years that I did, I felt like he was extremely talented. And I've done some research on him and found out that before he made it, he really didn't have any talent. I mean, the guy could barely do anything. And he basically got involved in this band. He started working with some guys and he got picked up by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. And I mean, that's a whole nother story. But once he got with Trent Reznor, he learned a lot from Trent and Trent started to produce him into an artist. And obviously he's He's grown immensely. We're talking about a guy who was who was a laughing stock of Florida, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, overnight, he has success, and he's this huge satanic superstar. So generally, when something like that happens, you have to question their involvement in the occult because people do make agreements with the devil in order to get this type of fame and this type of instant success. So that definitely caused me to think about him in different terms as I learned more about him and how he rose to success really quickly. I mean, that's the whole thing. You can't really see the secret oaths and the secret arrangements that these guys make, you know? So I think that uh, it's an unfortunate thing. Eventually all things will be revealed, but um, at this point you just have to kind of look to exactly what they say and their references to kind of get the gist of um, what they are. But, you know, like Christ said, by their acts, you shall know them. And I think his acts are very telling. Well, you know, you get into a lot of these celebrities. Um, you remember Robert Johnson, the famous, uh, the, what was it, the famous jazz player? The famous, yeah, blues player. Robert Johnson was pretty much a horrible player. Did not, I mean, he, he just wasn't good. And the story goes with Robert Johnson that he went to a crossroad and he sold his soul to a, either a demon or the devil. Obviously, you know, we would say it's all the same, but he sold his soul and instantly he was able to go back into the nightclubs and play with skill that no one's ever heard. And I've, I've talked about this briefly before, but it was overnight. He went from not being able to play very well to being one of the best guitar pickers of his time. And his story, his testimony is that he went to a crossroads and he sold his soul. He literally signed a contract with the devil for that success. You know, the crossroads themselves that he's rumored to have had that encounter are about 60 miles south of Memphis. That's very, very interesting. So it's still there. There's actually a Robert Johnson-like uh, statue. But the crossroads, the idea of the crossroads, I've covered this, it goes back to pagan religions of ancient days. Uh, crossroads were basically places where demons were known to meet with people and make deals with them. They would bargain for their soul, but they would give them, you know, they, and again, it's a bargain. You're not going to get what you're asking for 100%, but those demons will come to collect at some point in your life. And Eric Clapton uh, with the band Cream, they covered the song Crossroads. 
And it's very interesting because a lot of these celebrities, Johnny Depp, you know, I'm just throwing names out there who are involved in these occult groups. They got their huge just global success by occult rituals and going back to what we talked about with Marilyn Manson, you make a deal with the devil. And then before you know it, you know, you are on top of your game. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone follows you. And Johnny Depp is a pretty dark character. Um, you know, the fact that you would even bring him into this discussion tonight, uh, that kind of carries some weight because Depp is involved in, oh goodness, Depp is involved in things that people wouldn't even believe if we tried to tell you. Yeah, I agree. I'd agree with that. You know, and here he is making kids movies. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. The place where the crossroads of Robert Johnson was is in Rosedale, Mississippi, which is uh, pretty close to West Memphis. Well, like I said before, the Mississippi River, um, there are cult ties there with it being the Nile River of America. So, you know, hey, it's <laughs> a lot of the occult religion goes back to Egypt. Not all of it, but a lot of it. So it's uh, the connections are there. A significant component. You've done you've you've done a great job putting together a lot of research in your books. Um, occultinvestigations.com is your website. Ladies and gentlemen, definitely check out occultinvestigations.com. Uh, on the website, you're going to find all types of information. You got a link to William's blog. Uh, you've got the books right there at your fingertips. Also, I have tons of videos on the West Memphis Three at my YouTube site, which is Occult Investigations. Occult Investigations YouTube. And William Ramsey is on my friends list on Facebook. If you want to look him up, William Ramsey. And uh, man, William, you always bring so much interesting discussion and research into our conversations. I know we've only got together twice, but every time, man, both times have just been awesome. So uh, anything you want to drop in closing, you want to let anybody know about? Uh, no, just I, my new book is out, Children of the Beast. We talked about it in the last uh, discussion at coldinvestigations.com. And thank you very much for having me on your show. It's always a great uh, discussion. It goes fast. It does, man. And uh, looking forward to having you on again. Uh, I definitely want to have you on just to get into some other occult crimes, even stuff that you haven't written about um, that you've that you've researched. And uh, man, your your wheels are always turning. And I know that you're you're also working on getting your YouTube following up so you can use the the YouTube space in Los Angeles. Have you reached your goal yet? No, I'm not there. I'm about halfway. So if anybody, if you can go and subscribe to my channel, Occult Investigations, I appreciate it. William, thank you so much from the Fourth Watch Radio Network. And God bless you, brother. And uh, have a good night. God bless you, too. Thanks, Justin. Well, that was an interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We were just a little limited on time tonight because of some scheduling issues, so we had to lightly scratch the surface on some of the topics towards the end. I'll probably have to come back and schedule more shows in the near future to go deeper into some of those areas. But now I want to move us into our Bible study segment as we continue our expository study of the book of James. We've been taking the journey together through the first two chapters, and tonight I'm excited to jump right back in to chapter two. I want to encourage everyone to take notes and spend some time reflecting on these passages after the fact, never rushing through any of them, but absorbing every detail. Let's go ahead and head on over to James chapter 2, and we'll be working our way through verses 10 to 26 tonight and concluding chapter 2. It's only appropriate to remind you that the last time we left off with the subject matter of showing partiality to people and how this is an offense to the law of God. And you will be seen as transgressors of the law in this practice. James was truly exhorting us to correct this area of our lives if we are guilty of showing partiality. We're now about to get into another interesting aspect of the law as we begin our study tonight, starting with verses 10 and 11. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, 
thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now, first of all, James is referring here to the Ten Commandments. This is not referring to ceremonial laws or dietary laws. The fact is, he specifically refers to the Ten Commandments in the passage, which is the timeless undergirding of the moral law of believers. He says, if you break one commandment, just one, you have broken them all in God's eyes. So you sit back and say, well, I've never committed adultery, but I've killed someone. Well, in God's eyes, you are as guilty as the adulterer because you have, in fact, broken the entire law. Let's move this around a little bit, because most of you have probably never committed the physical act of murder. So you turn around and you say, "Okay, I've committed adultery or I've stolen something small when I was younger. In God's eyes, you're just as guilty as the murderer, because if you've broken one law, you have broken them all. The law cannot be cherry picked. It is a unified order. It is perfect. God is very clear. If you break one law, you have broken them all. A good friend of mine explained it really well one time. He said, you're breaking the unity of the law by breaking one of the laws. And that's exactly what James was explaining here. If you break one, you have broken them all. But I want to go deeper for a second before we move on. Jesus boldly changed the game with the words he shared with us in the Sermon on the Mount. He explained that if you have looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. He goes on to say that if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder. This is that awkward moment when you realize that sin is not solely based on physical behaviors, but it's rather based also on matters of the heart. Of course, sin can quickly manifest into physical behaviors oftentimes, but not always. As a matter of fact, you can sit at home and boil in hatred towards somebody and never harm a hair on their head. Yet in God's eyes, you're a murderer. You can sit at home and watch porn all day, and never have any physical interaction with anyone, yet in God's eyes, you're an adulterer. So even these matters of the heart are related to what James is talking about here. You're breaking only one commandment in worldly terms, but in godly terms, you're breaking the entire law. To break one commandment is to break them all. This is so important to grasp because the law is unkeepable. Some of you are not going to like me saying this, but the law, according to scripture, is unkeepable. Jesus is the only one who ever kept the entire unity of the law. The law was a schoolmaster that pointed forward to the need for a savior. You see, we can see our failures and our shortcomings in our failure to keep the law. And therefore, we clearly see that we need a savior to pay for our sins. We need the ultimate sacrifice on God's altar, once and for all. The sacrifice of Christ would not have been acceptable if he had not been perfect in his law keeping. Jesus literally was without blemish, and he was worthy of the ultimate sacrifice. As we've stated last time, in Christ, we are seen through his perfect law keeping. That moves us into the idea of the law of liberty. We're going to get back into that in a minute. But the bottom line here is, if you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all, and your sins must be paid for. It was God's grace and his mercy which allowed him to make this way for us to be forgiven. This is moving us right into the next area, verses 12 and 13. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. This is amazing. We are to act and speak as someone who's going to be judged by the law of liberty. 
But what does that mean exactly? When we partake in the law of liberty, we are entering into a grace and mercy situation. God is giving us a gift that we don't deserve. All the while, he's not giving us the punishment that we do deserve. Remember, we are lawbreakers. But entering into that grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, our lawbreaking has been paid for. So we don't receive the punishment that we deserve. So anyone who receives this type of grace and mercy has become a free man. They've become a partaker of the law of liberty. And so we are no longer awaiting trial and sentencing to eternal judgment. Mercy rejoices against judgment, James says. He says it just like that. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Therefore, act like a person who has received this mercy from Jesus Christ. And it is our calling to show this same measure of mercy to other people. James explains that the man who does not show mercy to others will not receive mercy from God. Basically, showing mercy is a fruit of our salvation. It's a fruit that demonstrates our faith. And this is going to move us into the relationship between our works and our faith. Verse 14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? James is drawing a heavy scrutiny here of a popular belief. So the question is, if a man claims to have faith but has no works, is his faith genuine? Can that type of workless faith actually save a man? That's the question we're investigating right now. And that's where we're headed right here. Let's go deeper. Verses 15 through 17. If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Now let me break this down in modern English. Somebody comes to you and they're lacking food and clothes. Let's just say it's winter time. It's cold outside and you see a brother or a sister in need. They don't have a coat and they haven't eaten anything in a few days. They're generally going to be weak and shivering because they're out in the cold without a jacket. You tell them to be fed and be warmed and to go in peace, but you don't provide for them food or clothes. Do you realize how ridiculous this is? There you are with the means to give them a coat and food, but instead you tell them, go on in peace and be blessed, not giving them the very things that they need. In this particular event, you're speaking hollow words. That's like rolling up on a guy whose car battery is dead and he needs a jump. He's out there in the middle of nowhere and you're driving by and what do you do? You pull up next to him, you roll your window down and you say, hey bro, go in peace, start your car. And then you drive off without giving him a jump. So these are hollow words. To issue words of blessing without providing the real blessings to back up those words, your words profit nobody. Go be fed, but I won't give you food. Go be warmed, but I won't give you clothes. Start your car, but I won't give you a jump. Words with no backing are vanity, and they profit no one. And James is giving this analogy to show that your words without actions are basically equivalent to faith without works. And he says that faith without works is dead. You can say all day long that you have faith, but those are just hollow words in and of themselves. So let's go deeper here. Verse 18, yea, a man say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. This is powerful. This is a standoff. Two contenders are entering the ring. 
One says, you have faith and I have works. And the other guy stands up and says, show me your faith apart from your works. Go ahead, try. But I will show you my faith by my works. According to scripture, who do you think is going to prevail in the ring of salvation? The man claiming to have faith with no works is putting a dead and hollow faith on display. While the man who is showing his faith by his works is actually demonstrating true and living faith. Think about it like this. When a purported crime is investigated, they look for evidence. Evidence provides legal proof to either back up a claim or to dismiss a claim. In the case for genuine faith, works is the evidence that will be on the scene. I want to go one step further. I've always enjoyed watching the TV show Cops. Cops are called out for a domestic dispute. There's a woman claiming to have been physically assaulted, and she blames the man. She reports that a man has punched her in the face repeatedly. But then the cops get there, and she has no marking on her face. She's got no bruising, no marks, no red, nothing. The evidence is either going to prove her claims, or the evidence is going to dismiss her claims. Likewise, if a man claims to have faith in Jesus, yet has no works, according to scripture, that faith is a fabrication. That faith is dead. But James strikes an even heavier blow in verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So we see here a man claiming to have faith, and he says that he believes in God. He literally says, I believe in the one true God. He's proclaiming his belief. But it says that the devils also believe in God. So a simple belief in God or a proclamation per se does not separate you from the devils. We all believe in the Godhead. So what sets apart living faith from dead faith? Where's the proof? Are we starting to see the picture here? Verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So no matter what you believe, works is the evidence or the fruits of true living faith in Christ Jesus. Works are the evidence. Works will show your faith and will be a natural response of your faith being lived out. Now, I'm going to break this down a little deeper when we finish up here in a minute. So hang in there. You may not like this portion of scripture, but let's go ahead and get through it. Verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So Abraham was being obedient to Yahweh as he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, this is a whole teaching in and of itself. But the point here is that Abraham was being obedient in his works unto the Lord. His works were literally working alongside of his faith. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And it goes on deeper to explain that God has preordained good works for us to walk in. And these good works literally work alongside of our faith. Consider it like this. You have a rowboat, a paddle on the right and a paddle on the left. One paddle is faith and the other paddle is works. If you only row one paddle, you're going to end up spinning in a circle over and over and over. And you're never going to progress forward. Faith and works are the paddles that row alongside of each other operating together. Again, it's not works that save us. It's works that are produced by our faith in Christ Jesus. And it's those very same works that show our faith. 
They provide evidence that our faith is not a deception. They express boldly that our faith is not only in vain words, but it's authentic indeed. So Abraham's faith was proven by his works. Now verse 24 goes deeper. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let me read that verse 26 one more time. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Many people profess to have a faith or a belief in Christ. But as we've seen earlier, the devils believe in Christ also. As a matter of fact, demons and devils have audibly professed that Christ is the Holy One of God. You can read about this in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. So just having a belief or a proclamation is not definitive of true living faith. According to scripture, faith without works is dead. Faith without works deceives many people. But that's why we have to study the word of God to see the truth about genuine faith. If you love God and you have entered into Christ Jesus, you've been created for good works, which will point others to salvation. But these good works that have been preordained for us in Christ not only lead people to salvation, but they also bless people in need. God uses us oftentimes as his hands and feet, but we have to submit to his authority and his will. We have got to be ambassadors for Christ, representing him on this earth. And that involves operating in the good works which he has created us for. I'll say it one more time. Faith without works is dead. I encourage you to really seek guidance and wisdom on this matter, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to take inventory and examine ourselves spiritually. Is your faith working alongside of good works? Are you walking in those good works that you were created for? When people see you, do they see Christ? This is one of those hard passages in Scripture when we begin to look at ourselves in comparison to the Word of God. Let's be used of God in these days. Let's operate in a true and living faith which will supernaturally produce good works. Let's show our faith by our works and let us know that we are living in authenticity. And remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 through 17. It's my prayer that our journey through James will bless you richly and encourage you in your spiritual lives. If you're not a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, stay tuned and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation. Until the next time we meet again, God bless and good night. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted his holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of his word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. 
And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds. So we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process, and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He is willing to meet you right where you are, and He will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, who shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show, and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network.